Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is April 22nd, 2022, and I am very happy to have with me today uh, Saleh Hijazi. Saleh is Deputy Regional Director for MENA at Amnesty International. And of course, Amnesty was in the news a lot of late. I've been trying to get Saleh on Occupied Thoughts well, but we've been very busy. Um, they were in the news because of a report that Amnesty published that concluded that Israel is committing the crime of apartheid on both sides of the Green Line. Since that report was released back on February 1st, uh, which seems like a lifetime ago, uh, the situation on the ground obviously is heated up even more. Um, and this includes terrorism targeting Israelis, which shattered what most Israelis had perceived as a period of calm, which is a perception that highlights how disconnected most Israelis are from the reality of Palestinians for whom the same period was anything but calm. So we have Palestinians in Jerusalem and the West Bank, the Gaza Strip and Palestinian citizens of Israel who are now paying an even higher price uh, for the status quo. And many worry that we are on the cusp of the kind of violence, including more police actions against Palestinian residents of Jerusalem and citizens of Israel and escalating Israeli army and settler actions in the West Bank and potentially escalating military operations against Gaza. Um, the same kind of thing that we saw almost exactly a year ago. So with all of that as background, Saleh, welcome. I have questions. Hi, Laura. So, Hi, <laughs> thank you. So, so just to start off, as I said, um, just a month ago, a little, a little over a month ago, we were all talking about the Amnesty Report and its findings with respect to Israel committing the crime of apartheid against Palestinians on both sides of the Green Line. So, you know, with all that's happening, why is this report relevant or even critical um, to understanding the violent events that are now making headlines? So the, the key word here is root causes. Um, and, and this is part, uh, if you look at what happened last year around the same time during Ramadan and what was called the cycle of violence, uh, we had the Commission of Inquiry actually set up to look at root causes in the mandate. And, and this is what the, the Amnesty uh, report titled um, Israel's Apartheid Against Palestinians, Cruel System of Domination and a Crime Against Humanity. This is exactly what it does. It exposes the underlying system uh, uh, on which these patterns of crimes and violations take place. So since the beginning of the year, uh, we've seen a rise in patterns of unlawful killings, arbitrary detention, torture, collective punishment, these criminal patterns and, and underlying criminal here, uh, they're not just mere violations because they've been going on for a long time, they're prolonged and they have an intention behind them. Uh, these criminal patterns are perpetrated to maintain Israel's system of apartheid against Palestinians. The system was established and maintained to ensure Jewish Israeli hegemony both in terms of demography and geography, meaning to ensure that Jewish Israelis are the majority in terms of the population in areas that Israel controls and that they have maximum control over land. This is expressed in Israeli uh, official statements since the establishment of the state until today, but also reflected in laws and policies and practices. Uh, uh, so this intent behind the system is what is needed uh, to express to explain these patterns of crimes that are then perpetrated to maintain the system of oppression and domination. What, what Amnesty's report does is it lays out the system uh, and explains how the system is made up of four main pillars. It's a fragmentation of Palestinians, 
into different geographic areas. It's then the segregation of Palestinians within these fragments, both in terms of law, but also physically in, in segregated communities, controlling them violently, including by the use of military occupation, uh, dispossession of land and property, and the deprivation of social and economic rights. This system has been put in place since the establishment of the state and is maintained then through uh, unlawful acts, including forcible transfers, uh, unlawful killings, arbitrary detention and torture, and persecution. And these unlawful acts are perpetrated to maintain this system that I just described. So in order to understand what is happening, what, what's happening since the beginning of the year is, is, is not uh, in, in, in the abstract. It's not a response to specific things that are happening. Uh, it is, uh, these are patterns to maintain the system. So since the beginning of the year, we have more than 41 Palestinians, including eight children who were killed by Israeli forces. Uh, hundreds were uh, arbitrarily detained. Some of those detained were uh, subjugated to torture, including children. Uh, and we've had, we've seen how uh, Israel imposed collective punishment. I mean, there is the collective punishment, of course, in Gaza. Uh, it's closing 15 years of this criminal blockade uh, in June, but also we see how collective punishment is used against Palestinians either in Jerusalem in the month of Ramadan or in Jenin in the wake of attacks against uh, Israelis in, in, in Israel. These are practices of domination, uh, and it is crucial to understand them as such in order to tackle then the root causes uh, of these cycles of violence that we see happen every now and then. Thank you. And I, I really, I, I appreciate going back to the, the foundations in the report and we'll put a, I'll put a link to the report in the, the text that goes with this, with this podcast. Um, you know, we all, there's a lot of noise when, when things start to, you know, bubble up in the media's coverage of Israel-Palestine, you start seeing a lot of noise about people trying to restore status quo ante, restore the calm. I'm putting quotes around restore and I'm putting quotes around calm. Um, can you, you've talked about root causes. I want you to talk a little more about what this framing misses um, with respect to you know, trying to address why this violence is happening. What, it, from, from a human rights defender's perspective, one of the terms that comes up a lot is structural violence. And maybe you know, contrast a little bit what people think about when they, people are very clear that somebody going and shooting at civilians in, a, in an Israeli town is terrorism and is unacceptable. There's no question, everybody gets that. Can you talk about the violence that people just don't even see, don't even recognize as violence that is ongoing, that is one of those root causes that you're talking about? Yeah, so this, the situation is called calm when apartheid is being, right? We, uh, what the report describes is a system of oppression and domination uh, that has been put, that, that is in place in seven, more than 70 years now. Uh, so after this very long period of time, for the majority of the time, uh, it, the violence does not appear, it's not so spectacular. It comes, of course, uh, it is very shocking in your face. You have the media coverage and, and whatnot, but then in the majority of the time, it, it is this banal apartheid. It is the system that I described uh, of fragmentation, segregation and control, dispossession of land and property and the deprivation of economic and basic uh, and, and economic and social rights. Uh, can I that, ask you just the, with yeah. all those words, can, can you give some, put some flesh on the bones of what that means? What does isolation mean and, and, and fragmentation? What is dispossession of land? 
Um, because again, I think there's a, when people hear words like structural violence, I, I think they're thinking like, oh, that's somebody coming and hitting someone with a, with a, with a stick. And I don't think they're thinking things like, you know, a, a, a toddler in Gaza dying because Israel wouldn't give a permit for that toddler to reach a hospital, which I think from a human rights defender's perspective is structural violence against that family, correct? Can, can you talk about that? Because I think these sometimes these words aren't fully understood, I think. Sure. Uh, so there are these four pillars of what you know, may also be called kind of the strategies, Israel's strategies of apartheid, uh, the system of apartheid. And fragmentation is... Uh, when Palestinians, and, and this is what has been ongoing, uh, divided up into different geographic areas that are not allowed to be together. So you, like, you split the community, you split the population, and you control them in different ways. So what we have today is Palestinians who are outside of Israel and occupied Palestinian territories, what is called Mandate Palestine. Uh, these are refugees who have been denied the right to return since they were forcibly uh, pushed out of their homes in 1948 and again in 1967 when Israel occupied the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Uh, then you have Palestinians in the West Bank. Uh, they are stateless unless they have uh, a citizenship of a third country. These are stateless Palestinians uh, that are under uh, military rule. Uh, their lives are subject to military orders. Uh, that are issued by military commanders that control every aspect of their lives. Uh, you have Palestinians in East Jerusalem. These are residents of uh, Israel, not citizens. Um, so they're allowed to live in this area, but there's the actions that are continuously trying to push them out uh, of, of Jerusalem. Then you have Palestinians in Gaza who are... Um, as we just said, they'll be closing 15 years of uh, uh, collective punishment, uh, Israel's blockade that has been put in place since 2006, 2007. And then you have Palestinian citizens of Israel who are, yes, citizens, uh, but because of discriminatory laws, they are treated as second or third class citizens. They don't enjoy the same full spectrum of rights than, that Jewish Israelis uh, enjoy. Uh, so these are the fragments. Within the fragments, you have then uh, segregation and control. So Palestinians inside of Israel, citizens of Israel, are confined to areas they live in. Their lands are confiscated. They're not allowed building permits. They can't expand their communities. Uh, the situation becomes more oppressive when you look at Palestinians in the West Bank who are living in also segregated communities between settlements that are continuously expanding, 60% of the uh, West Bank is uh, uh, under settlements control, either build up areas or areas that fall within the municipal uh, boundaries of these settlements and they're off limits to Palestinians. There are also roads that are only for Jewish Israeli settlers that Palestinians cannot use. Uh, and so you have the segregated communities within and they're controlled within the West Bank by, as we described, the military orders. Then in Jerusalem, of course, and within Jerusalem, you have the segregated communities, the Isawiyah, Silwan, where you're not allowed to uh, expand or build, and there's continuous home demolitions. Uh, and uh, of course, the biggest of the uh, what may be called Bantustan in, in uh, uh, the South African apartheid language, and actually what Al-Mizan, human rights organization, one of our partner organizations based in Gaza, 
uh, has described in a report they put out last year to describe how apartheid manifests itself in Gaza. They call it the Gaza Bantustan. Uh, and the UN has called it the largest open air prison in the world, uh, where people uh, cannot move in and out. Uh, they live in extreme poverty. There's no clean water, uh, et cetera. The situation is extremely dire. So these are the, the, the segregated elites. They're controlled in different ways, discriminatory laws when it comes to Palestinian citizens of Israel, military orders when it comes to Palestinians of the West Bank, uh, also discriminatory laws when it comes to Palestinians in East Jerusalem, and of course, kind of the collective punishment on, on Gaza. There's also segregation by law, right? Because in the West Bank, for example, you have Jewish-Israeli settlers living in illegal uh, settlements that are considered war crimes according to international law. They're treated according to Israel's civilian law, right? While Palestinians, you know, just a few meters away from them uh, are treated under uh, military orders. Uh, inside of Israel, when it comes to Palestinian citizens of Israel, as we described, uh, they are not considered nationals. Yes, they are citizens of Israel, but they don't enjoy the full right spectrum of rights that nationals enjoy. And nationals are only Jewish Israeli settlers. And here, sorry, Jewish uh, Israelis. And here, perhaps we can mention uh, the nation state law that was passed in 2018. Uh, it is a law uh, uh, that has constitutional value. Uh, and in the law, it says that Israel is, is a state for. Uh, Jewish people only, and only them have the right to self-determination. Uh, so basically just removing completely those Palestinian citizens of Israel. So this is segregation and control. When it comes to dispossession, since the creation of the state, Israel has put together a land regime to take away land from Palestinians. Um, I'll give an example of, for example, the absentee property law. Uh, there was a law that was put in place to take away property of those Palestinians who were forcibly displaced out uh, of what became Israel, but also property of those who were displaced from their homes and villages, but remained within Israel as internally displaced people. Like take, for example, Iqrif. Iqrif is a village that was the community of which were forcibly displaced. They lived nearby a few, a few kilometers away from their village, but they're not allowed to return. And all their land was taken away through these various laws that make up Israel's land regime and then given to Jewish communities that were established on that land. Deprivation is then the policies that always keep Palestinian at a disadvantage when it comes to uh, socioeconomic rights as compared to uh, uh, Jewish Israelis, whether it is in the occupied West Bank or inside of Israel or, or elsewhere, like for example, in Naqab. I think the Naqab is a, is, is, a, is a very clear and stark example of this deprivation where you have Palestinian Bedouins living in communities that are not recognized, although they've been living there for decades. They're not provided electricity, water, uh, basic services, roads, while their uh, Jewish neighbors, um, sometimes farms that are for just a single family, are provided all these basic services, land and water and electricity, and they're connected to the uh, infrastructure that also makes it easy, easier for them to practice their, for example, political rights of voting. Uh, Palestinians in unrecognized villages can vote. Uh, but then when we were speaking to them in the research of this report, they said, yes, we can vote, but we can't access uh, the ballot boxes. Uh, we're not able to, yes, we have that right, but we're not able to practice it because the state does not make it easier for us to practice it as they do, for example, to our Jewish neighbors. So this is deprivation. Uh, and all these four components is what make up uh, uh, the system. 
And, and this system has a rhythm, to go back to your question, Lara, about kind of the calm. It has a rhythm that is ongoing and, and uh, it, it almost feels as if, you know, this is the, the, the normal way of life and it's not making the news, it's, uh, nobody's paying attention to it, except when it shows its very violent side, let's say, or the spectacularly violent side. Uh, and, and, and this happens when, uh, you know, calm is when Palestinians are killed, uh, but not Israelis. Uh, it is when uh, Palestinian protests are crushed, uh, but the Israeli police does not have to stop right-wing extremists from reaching Damascus Gate, for example, as we've seen a, a, a couple of days ago. Uh, it is uh, when Palestinians are put in administrative detention, which is detention without, without charge of trial, including children, but Israel does not have to use administrative detention to stop them right-wing extremists from, from uh, uh, doing something, uh, um, uh, whatever they'll be suspected of doing. So it, this is the calm. The calm is when uh, apartheid continues on without it being felt then, without it showing this, this kind of violent side. But when it does, it's then when you need to restore back the calm and go back to apartheid being banal, right? Not being so uh, uh, visible. So yeah, that, that's an incredibly helpful explanation for people. Anyone just joining us, uh, I'm here with Saleh Hijazi, who is a deputy regional director for MENA at Amnesty International. And 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 really what, what you're describing, and I, I really do want to inject in, inject the word structural, the term structural violence, because I think for a lot of people looking at this, they the perception is that things are not violent until there is a Palestinian attack against Israelis and that Palestinians maybe life isn't great, whatever, it's complicated, but it's not violence. And structural violence is, is a term that effectively describes all of the violence that is inherent in a system that deprives people of their basic needs, of their basic rights, of their dignity. It, it's, it's built in. And, and the entire Amnesty Report, which I do recommend people read, it's like 280 pages, heavily footnoted. Um, but really, before if you're someone who has paid attention to the criticism, it's worth actually reading it or at least scanning it because it's a heavily researched, extremely rich report. Um, but it really is documenting and making, I think, I think it gives a clear understanding of why this is called structural violence. And that calm in this context, when people say restoring calm, they're talking about restoring an equilibrium where one side is living with intense, ongoing, perpetual structural violence, and the other side gets to be ignoring it <laughs> effectively. Um, looking at where the news is today, and I was looking at the news before you, you joined me today, so, so there's buzzwords we hear at times like these, including today, words like clashes, uh, the word clash to describe interactions taking place in Palestinian towns or streets and of late um, holy sites between Israeli police and soldiers on one hand, or sometimes Israeli settlers and Palestinian civilians on the other hand. Another word that we hear a lot is security, that what Israel is always doing is seeking only to, to restore or impose calm and security. Um, and you see words like terrorists and rioters used to describe Palestinians, including cases where in effect you have, you know, I, I always use the example, you know, use the word terrorist in the Israeli, Israeli context to describe a Palestinian who is, you know, sitting on his front porch in his village and his village is raided by the IDF in the West Bank and he throws a rock and now he is a terrorist attacking a soldier. It's a really fascinating framing. Can you talk about 
this kind of language, any or all of it, and what it discloses about the power dynamics in place and what it obfuscates um, with respect to the realities on the ground for both peoples. So these, these words reflect kind of a, a false equivalence, right? That um, uh, they, they help to conceal uh, what the real situation is. The you know, what you were saying, kind of the structural violence. Apartheid is about the structure, the structure of domination and oppression. Um, and when, 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 you, when you use these words, uh, uh, they, they reflect as if there are two equal sides um, uh, with the same power, um, uh, and with the same resources, with the same abilities, so it's it's the false equivalence. I would say um, actually the word clashes as two equal parties. When you refer to a Palestinian in the West Bank who throws a rock at a fully armed jeep as it goes by in their town, you call them terrorists. It actually suggests that one side, the Palestinian side, is more dangerous and weaponized and a greater threat, and that the Israeli side is the vulnerable, weak side that is walking around picking flowers and just suddenly um, a victim. So, sorry, go on. No, I, I, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you could you could go more 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 into that and to see. I mean, we uh, yesterday I saw kind of a short clip uh, of an interview with uh, Israeli Prime Minister uh, Bennett uh, on, on on CNN, uh, where he was saying, you know. We, we don't kill Palestinians. It's the Palestinians who are killing us. And so it's the kind of like complete switch around kind of the, 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 the concealing and, 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 the, and the spinning of things in, in a way that is, um, is a complete lie, right? Um, uh, but it's what we as Amnesty are trying to do along with others, right? With the publication of our report, uh, there's a consensus that has now been completed among civil society organizations working on the human rights situation in Israel and Palestine, that Israel is perpetrating the crime against humanity of apartheid. This consensus has now also grown to the UN with the special rapporteur on the human rights situation in the occupied Palestinian territories, also making determination that Israel is perpetrating the crime against humanity of apartheid. Uh, uh, with that, we are able to then deal with the situation as it is, describe it as it is, and uh, provide the remedies for it uh, from, from a legal perspective here uh, for how to deal with it. But it's also, uh, it, has, it has its implication when it comes to kind of discourse and vocabulary and the use of words. So it is not clashes, it's repression. It is not security, it's domination. Uh, it's not rioters, it's protesters. And it's not terrorists, it's actually a demographic threat that Israel sees in Palestinians. And so uh, Israel treats Palestinians as an inferior racial group and sees them only as a demographic threat or a security threat or both together. A Palestinian in Gaza is a security threat. A Palestinian in Naqab is a demographic threat. A Palestinian in Al-Fahim can be both because then uh, perhaps uh, uh, you don't want them, the, the system does not want them there. They want to decrease the number of Palestinians. And if they are protesting against Israel's policies of oppression and domination, they become a security threat and so on. And this is basically the logic of, of dealing with it. And you have a discourse uh, that is used then to conceal uh, uh, the, the structural violence, the, uh, the domination, the intent behind the system of oppression and domination and the crime against humanity. I, I find myself thinking as, as you're talking about this, remembering it, the 
the whole framing that, that I grew up with, you know, nonviolent protests, why won't the Palestinians, you know, follow Gandhi or, you know, Martin Luther King, which, which there's, there's, a, there's a fascinating um, misremembering of what nonviolent protests looked like in, in other contexts, um, it, reframing it to be something it really wasn't. But beyond that, I mean, in, in the past 15 years, as I've, you know, you hear terms like, you know, you said, so someone is a demographic threat there. You know, if you want to do nonviolent protests, you're a terrorist, you're an economic terrorist, you're a diplomatic terrorist, you're a journalistic terrorist, you're a human rights defender who's actually a terrorist. I mean, everything, you know, all forms of nonviolent protests are also terrorism. They're, it's, 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 a, uh, it's a very um, problematic use of language. And I would say it really cheapens the whole problem of actual terrorism um, in the world. Um, which is something else entirely. Um, can, just, I want to zoom back in on the current crisis, um, and I want to look a little bit at Jerusalem. And this is you, you cover quite a bit about Jerusalem in the report. So there's often um, what I would see as a kind of tunnel vision from analysts, um, international and Israeli analysts, when they look at the any kind of conflict around the Haram Sharif Damascus Gate. Um, the, a desire to sort of look at it in isolation. And it's really where we started, you know, root causes are much bigger. So, you know, if you just look at an isolation, um, it, it seems make, maybe a simpler conversation. In effect, I am hearing from, from people the argument that we should be looking for the good news here. And the good news here is that the current Israeli government isn't as bad as the last government when it comes to the, the Hamashid Temple Mount. And by extension, the Israeli police this time, yes, there's bad things happening, but those are isolated. They just happen to be caught on tape. And yes, they're bad, but overall, they're seeking to not escalate in the same way as last year. It's not as brutal as last year. And that the goal should be to capitalize on that better behavior in order to calm things down. Um, that, it, that's the analysis I've heard repeatedly. So can you can you talk about this analysis um, and and both for what it says that may, may be true in some ways, I mean, if people, fewer people get hurt, that's a good thing, um, but also for what it misses in terms of the realities um, for Palestinians in Jerusalem, uh, the, the realities that define their lives, the limitations in terms of their access and to, to holy sites and all of that. And also, can you talk about how this how this relates to the, say, the cognitive framing of issues related to the holy sites for, for Palestinians outside of Jerusalem and the fears, um, some perhaps fed by um, fears, not less about reality, but some actually, I'd say, very much fed by things that are coming from um, right-wing extremists um, and even Israeli politicians, that the greater fears that, that, that say it isn't just about this current conflict, there's a bigger threat to our equities in Jerusalem today? Um, so first, let me say, I'm, I'm not sure there was uh, less people hurt and then uh, what happened last year, uh, take away the, the, the armed conflict uh, or the military operation in Gaza. Um, in that day when Israeli forces stormed uh, the Aqsa compound, uh, there were more than 200 people who were injured, including children. Uh, uh, there was use of excessive force uh, amounting to torture, uh, including against children. Um, uh, we've seen before uh, that uh, um, uh, that trade, uh, also how um, Israeli forces around Damascus Gate, which was last year, and if you remember also kind of in previous years when Israel was trying to impose what we'd call the, the, the metal detecting gates, uh, around Al-Aqsa, and that sparked uh, protests by Palestinians. Eventually, 
you know, not allowing the Israeli authorities to uh, to place these. So it's 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 an it's an ongoing kind of situation around Jerusalem um, and particularly Damascus Gate and, and Al Aqsa. Uh, and and this year it was perhaps what I would say kind of a, a use of different tactic tactic where you have an outburst of extreme violence that perhaps is intended to deter. Uh, then perhaps an organizing of a protest or actually for pe- people to just congregate around like Damascus Gate, like usually happens around Ramadan. And uh, uh, so for example, one of the tactics used was uh, the undercover police uh, unit called Mustaribin, uh, which uh, literally translates to, you know, looking like Arabs. Um, and these are undercover units that are usually and has been widely documented. They're kind of violent. Uh, uh, the violent tactics when they carry out uh, arrests. Uh, and, and we have documented uh, uh, how they carried out arrests, including of children uh, using extreme for- torture. So when uh, they detain somebody, they continue to beat them uh, so that they're uh, not resisting uh, uh, that arrest, but also everybody around can see that really extreme violence and somewhat will be deterred. And I think the same thing happened on that morning. But to go back to kind of like and, the, and there's some, the I say there are some there are some videos from Damascus Gate from those days which are pretty hor- horrible of, of that kind of beating and stuff. Sorry, go right, on. right. Um, uh, no, I, I wanted to go back now, kind of, kind of to to, to uh, uh, the the larger context of of, of Jerusalem, um, and uh, you know the the focus on perhaps kind of the Laksa compound and the arrangement that is there. Um, is somewhat meant to kind of also conceal this, this larger reality, which we have been describing, I mean, in our conversation so far in terms of the system of apartheid. And Jerusalem is somewhat of a microcosm of that, right? So it is isolated uh, from uh, the rest of the occupied West Bank, uh, and sometimes also isolated from Palestinians even inside of Israel. Of course, Gazans are locked up in that, uh, in that prison, uh, and they're not able to, to access it. But isolation is not only in terms of kind of visiting the religious sites. And this is a right that should be protected, but it's also really all about families. I, my mother's family is from Jerusalem. Um, I grew up um, uh, seeing how Jerusalem was isolated in the early 90s. This is when Israel started imposing kind of the severe movement restrictions, uh, uh, placing the checkpoints uh, around Jerusalem. And I remember clearly, you know, uh, that was something new where my mother was complaining about, you know, how her legs hurt from keeping to press the clutch when we're stuck in a uh, in traffic at a at a checkpoint. And, if, and, if I could just add in here, I mean, I, I was living in Jerusalem at the time, and and for folks who are unaware of it, the checkpoints around Jerusalem are an artifact of Oslo. There were no checkpoints in and out of Jerusalem. They came up right after the Oslo Accords, um, in what. I mean, I was at the consulate then reporting on this and what appeared to us to be a clear attempt by Israel to essentially um, establish control over um, a greater area further and further out. So you actually saw the checkpoints even move further out to sort of take take more land, take more territory over time. But the first checkpoints appeared right after Oslo um, and then became slowly um, solidified and cemented as a new reality in the years that followed. So continue. That that's just as an artifact of the peace, quote unquote, peace process. No, absolutely. And 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 what that also meant is is uh, also an emptying of uh, Jerusalem from its institutions. So my grandfather, for example, ran an educational center. Uh, a, uh, the center provided uh, uh, a kind of um, 
um, courses in um, mechanics, car mechanics, but also languages, typing, all sorts of things. And, uh, and I remember that after um, uh, the checkpoints in, in, in Beit Hanina in particular, which is north of um, uh, Jerusalem, separating Ramallah from Jerusalem, uh, he no longer was able to have students who were coming from, from the West Bank, which made the majority of, uh, of, of students in that education center. And so he had to move to Ramallah. And, and in these 90s, and you're right, I mean, this is the result of Oslo, right? Uh, uh, Oslo comes, Jerusalem is isolated, and Palestinian institutions, cultural, education, and whatnot actually are empty. They go out, including my grandfather's. He had to open then an office in Ramallah. Eventually, it had to close. Um, so the isolation of Jerusalem, right? And, and this has been going on for, for, for decades. And then the segregation of the Palestinians within, right? So you see now how Palestinian neighborhoods, uh, Beit Hanina, Laisawiyah, Silwan, Jabal Mukabbir, are all segregated. They're, they're in a place where they cannot grow. Uh, their movements in and out are very restricted. You don't have checkpoints around Silwan, except when things happen. Yes, it's very easy to impose blocks and, and block roads and really lock in communities like it happened in the past. Um, but it's, it's not easy in and out, and, 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 and they are underdeveloped, uh, right? You, they do pay taxes uh, to the Israeli authorities, what is called kind of the Arnona tax that uh, then contributes to municipal services like garbage uh, collection, uh, making the roads better, creating public spaces and whatnot. This, this does not exist in, for example, Sawiya and, and, and Silwan. It does exist for them the Jewish-Israeli settlements that are, that are nearby, who are better connected, they have the services, uh, um, and, and they're not deprived of these basic rights. Uh, and you have, uh, of course, the empty. Uh, and I think the key word here is Judaization, right? Uh, perhaps the Qalm at al-Aqsa conceals that a little bit, although, you know, this is not a secret. It is there in Jerusalem municipal policies, about having Jewish Israelis as a majority in the city in terms of population and what Judaization then means in terms of the, uh, the identity and the culture uh, of the city. And so it is, ex except of that, what you see around in Jerusalem is really, and I think this is what the term uh, Judaization indicates, it's the replacement of the city and its people with another. Um, uh, uh, Take, for example, Wadi Joz uh, as one that is now under threat. Israel and the municipality has a plan to turn that into a so-called kind of Silicon Valley of, of, of Jerusalem. Uh, this means really is taking away this historic neighborhood uh, all away, moving the people out of it uh, to build this project that people do not consent to. They, they have not even been consulted on, uh, uh, right? So. Uh, this is what happens all around. And then when you have something like this, Al-Haram Sharif and the status quo and, you know, what the Jordanians are, uh, are concerned about and whatnot, it, it is as if everything is just that. Uh, this is what Jerusalem and the issue and the problem of Jerusalem is. And therefore, when Israel says, yes, we're okay with, uh, uh, with preserving the status quo, uh, that means Israel has... Uh, uh, really done a positive thing here, while all around, all around Al-Haram Sharif, what, what you're having is a replacement of a city and its people by another. The, um, 
Yeah, I, I would I would encourage people to to look at the the amnesty report. You document um, all of these uh, issues in, in in detail. We actually have a settlement report that we produce, um, which covers a lot of Jerusalem stuff. I I'm writing it right now for my colleague is is away for a bit, but we covered Silicon Wadi, um, quote unquote Silicon Wadi, a couple weeks ago. It it really is quite extraordinary how little attention is being given to the idea of just simply raising an entire Palestinian neighborhood. And to the extent that you know Palestinian concerns are taken in, the answer is, oh, this will be good for the Palestinians. I mean, th there is no there is no world in which Israel would do this to a Jewish neighborhood in Jerusalem. They just wouldn't. Um, but for a Palestinian neighborhood, it's like this is just a planning issue. All right, we're coming to the end. I have one final question for you. Um, so another, how is this? Another word that comes up a lot in when we're talking about Israeli actions and crisis, and a word that comes up a lot in amnesty press releases and reports is impunity. I want you to talk about the concept of impunity. Why do human rights defenders, including amnesty, focus on the issue of impunity? Whether you're talking about impunity for Israeli officials, Israeli soldiers, Israeli settlers. And can you talk about what amnesty means when it talks about needing to, and I'm quoting, stop the cycle of impunity? And this is the final question, so throw in anything else you want. I think so. Uh Look, it's that for over seven decades, the international community has stood by as Israel has been given free reign to dispossess, segregate, control, oppress, and dominate, as we have been describing, and as our report and other reports also kind of lay out in, in, in a lot of detail based on documentation and legal analysis. There are numerous UN Security Council resolutions, for example, that are adopted over the years that have remained unimplemented. Uh, and, and, and this is because the international community uh, sees the implementation of those as, uh, as undermining whatever interests that Israel and its allies have. And Israel, in ignoring these, the UN Security Council, but also international law, has faced no repercussions for actions that have violated international law uh, and, and has been merely met by sometimes condemnations, right, in, in, in words without being followed up by action. Uh, what we're saying is when, when we're pointing out impunity and uh, responsibility, moral and legal responsibility uh, uh, for states uh, to act against, to suppress and punish the crime of apartheid, is that without any meaningful action to hold Israel to account for its systematic and widespread violations and crimes under international law, uh, the international community has contributed to undermining the international legal order and has emboldened Israel to continue perpetrating crimes with impunity. Uh, we can also say that some states have actively supported Israel's violations by supplying it with, for example, arms, equipment, and other tools to perpetrate the crimes, uh, as well as providing diplomatic cover, uh, including at the UN Security Council, to shield it from accountability. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, they, the international community have completely failed the Palestinian people and have only made uh, this situation uh, a lot worse. This is what we mean by, by, by impunity, is that Israel, you know, Israel says that it's singled out uh, when it comes, for example, to the UN and treatment by uh, uh, human rights organizations. Yes, it is singled out because it's treated at a much lesser standard when it comes to international law, rule of law, human rights than other states. Right, and, and we, we could see that happen. I mean, if, if, if it was another state, you would have, for example, uh, you know, the situation in uh, uh, Russians, uh, Russia's uh, war on Ukraine uh, has sparked uh, a reaction that 
from a human rights organization's perspective is brilliant, right? Because international law has been has not only been provoked, but has been acted on. There were sanctions. Uh, there were all sorts of measures that were quickly put together uh, to really hold Russia to, to, to account for violations of international law. Uh, why isn't Israel treated in the same way uh, uh, when, in this case, what Amnesty, other organizations, this consensus among uh, civil society and UN bodies are saying, why isn't Israel held to account when it is perpetrating a crime against humanity, uh, against the Palestinian people? So uh, uh, this is what we mean by putting, po pointing to that. And, and, and really what, what I just said, it's, it's, it's twofold. It's when Israel is not paying any cost for continuing with the crime against humanity. It is not only uh, affecting, of course, primarily the, the Palestinians, the victims of such a crime, but it's also undermining the international uh, order of the rule of law, of human rights and others. So, yeah. All right, so uh, we're gonna have to end there. That's, I think, a really strong place to end on. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to work that into a title for this podcast, because I think, you know, looking at where things are today, when I hear people calling for calm and restoring calm and, you know, getting back on some political track and it, 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 it always, it's, it's so clear. And I think you framed it really powerfully, unless the underlying, unless you deal with root causes and impunity, this is a cycle, but it's not the cycle that when people talk about a cycle of violence kicked off because a Palestinian committed an act of terrorism in Tel Aviv, that that's not the cycle. This is a cycle of impunity and it's going to be ongoing. And, and everyone, it, the part that I think is the most painful for a lot of, a lot of, um, maybe I don't say just for Palestinians and for analysts for anybody, but it's there almost seems to be an inevitability about this, right? People understand that if you tamp things down now, they are going to bubble up again because you have not dealt with underlying causes and impunity remains. And it almost seems like there's, it reminds me of when the Israelis talk about mowing the lawn in Gaza, as if people have almost factored this in now that this is the way forward is ongoing perpetual Palestinian suffering, periodic bubbling up of enough violence that Israelis pay attention and then are treated as the victim. And then you bring it back down again until it comes up again. And, and that's the cycle that I think is, is just so, um, it's maddening and it's, it's, and it's, it's indefensible, frankly. So, all right, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. We're going to stop here. Sarah, thank you for joining me today. Thank you Thanks, for taking the time and sharing your insights. For our audience, thank you for listening or for anybody watching the video, thanks for watching. And finally, as always, I wanna remind people to subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. We're doing great content every week. You don't wanna miss it. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify, and you can catch the video on our website, www.fmep.org. And with that, we're gonna end it here. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Bye-bye.